reliable are sustainability targets set by energy companies? Honestly, our targets change all the time. As we're constantly evolving, we're also constantly revisiting and revising our targets, setting even more ambitious ones. I'm Florencia Garrido, and I work at Siemens Energy. See how we are transforming energy at SiemensEnergy.com. Coronavirus doesn't discriminate, but people of color in Oregon are more likely to be essential workers or have health conditions that can put them at greater risk. And the data show those communities are, in fact, bearing the brunt of the pandemic. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, reporter Selena Tibor discusses how the COVID-19 crisis is affecting a wide range of communities of color in the state. We talked about her reporting on the community that is perhaps hardest hit, Pacific Islanders. We also discussed what the state and community is doing to respond to the crisis, her reporting on the Bhutanese refugee community in the metro area, and why Lincoln County was well-prepared to respond to the indigenous Latinx community there. Here's our conversation. Selena Tibor, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Of course. Thank you for having me. Selena, the coronavirus is affecting everyone in our state in some fashion, but it's really having a disproportionate effect on people of color. And you've been reporting on this issue for the past couple of weeks. What jumped out to you in state data? Yeah, so every week, the Oregon Health Authority releases a weekly report, and that outlines some of the data that they've collected about coronavirus each week in the state. And one area that they report on is the severity and rates of COVID-19 by race. And so it lays out all the different races and ethnicities. And what you find is that white people, which make up the majority of the state's population, they have the lowest case rate out of any other ethnicity or race in the state, which seems really odd considering it's a larger population. And so there's a few reasons why this is happening. And the biggest reason across the board for all people of color and why they have higher rates is just because they're more likely to be essential workers. So these are things like working in food processing plants, maybe mm-hmm. being medical employees, um, working in nursing homes or hospitals. So all of those jobs that you know are going to have a higher risk of exposure to COVID-19, those are jobs that people of color are working in. And Oregon is not an outlier in in this trend where people of color are disproportionately affected. This is happening nationally. But here in Oregon, uh, there are, I guess, different effects depending on the community. And and you had a story recently on the Pacific Islander community. Um, What's happening uh, to those folks here in Oregon? Yeah. So Pacific Islanders make up a really small part of Oregon's population. They're only 0.4% of the population but they're making up 2.7% of total cases, and they have extremely, extremely high rates of COVID-19 for their community. And so I was interested in kind of looking into why Pacific Islanders are having such high rates of COVID-19, even though it's such a tiny community. And so I was able to speak to a couple community leaders and epidemiologists at Multnomah County, and they kind of explained a few different reasons why Pacific Islanders are kind of experiencing this disparity in COVID-19 rates. So the first reason is like other people of color, like I just mentioned, Pacific Islanders are just more likely to be essential workers and they're more likely to be exposed to COVID-19. In addition to that, 
a lot of Pacific Islanders don't have the typical nuclear family American home where it's two parents and a couple children in a household. Pacific Islanders tend to have multi-generational, multi-family homes. And so there's a lot of people in a house and it just makes it that much harder to socially distance, especially when people are coming home from jobs where they might have been exposed to COVID-19. Do you have a sense of whether this is workplace spread or um, community spread among family or a little bit of both? Is there any way to drill down? It's hard to drill down. The Oregon Health Authority doesn't release data correlating the ethnicity and what type of outbreak or what kind of cases they're connected to. But I would say that it's probably a little bit of both of workplace outbreaks, community spread, um, households, and clusters, probably all types. When we talk about the Pacific Islander community, um, who exactly are those Oregonians? Pacific Islanders cover a really, really wide range of different races and nationalities, actually. So the U.S. Census Bureau kind of lists a few different classifications. So there's Native Hawaiians, there's Guamanians, or also known as Chamorros, Samoans, and then this also includes Polynesians, Micronesians, and Melanesians. So there's a really wide range of countries that Pacific Islanders represent. And we are seeing outbreaks uh, in various communities across, you know, Oregon's 36 counties. It, it's really across the board. But do we have a sense of where uh, Pacific Islanders and in, in that community here in Oregon are being affected? Are there geographic hotspots? So I don't have the exact numbers about which areas are kind of hotspots of COVID-19 and the Pacific Islander community, but the community leader that I spoke to in Multnomah County um, has been working not only in Multnomah County, which is Oregon's most populous county, um, but it's neighboring Washington County. And then she's also hoping to do some work in Union County, which is in uh, northeastern Oregon. So the fact that she's trying to implement testing in these three counties tells me that these are counties that have heavy concentration of COVID-19 among Pacific Islanders. Yeah, you mentioned Union County. Um, you also covered um, one of the larger outbreaks, or it might actually be the largest at, at this time, at the uh, Lighthouse Pentecostal Church in Island City, which is adjacent to La Grande out in the uh, Grand Round Valley. Um, were we able to definitively say whether um, that church uh, you know, had a high proportion of its uh, congregation were Pacific Islanders? Yeah. So I've been speaking to a lot of members um, of the LaGrande and Union County community, and I've heard anecdotally from a lot of different people that people from the Marshall Islands, Marshallese people, which are Pacific Islanders, do make up a large percentage of the church congregation at the Lighthouse Church. I don't have any data, but I have heard anecdotally from a lot of people that there are a lot of Pacific Islanders out there and attending that church. So, Selena, we're, you know, several months into this pandemic and things have ramped up in the last month. And as you mentioned, um, the effect on uh, white Oregonians is actually significantly smaller <laughs> than the the uh, people of color in this state in the last month alone, according to our reporting, just one out of three cases in the state involved a, a white Oregonian. So that's pretty astounding when you think this is a state with 75% of yeah. the population is white. And then one other thing that's worth noting is not even, not just the number of cases, but 
the severity of the cases. So Pacific Islanders also suffer from really large health disparities that make them more vulnerable to um, have severe cases of COVID-19. So, for example, Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders were 80% more likely to be obese than non-Hispanic whites in 2016. In 2018, they were two and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with diabetes. And then an epidemiologist with Multnomah County that I spoke to also said that Pacific Islanders suffer from high rates of hypertension and cardiovascular disease. And those are all some of the most prevalent underlying conditions of COVID-19 patients that require hospitalization. And um, at the time, or actually currently, Pacific Islanders are the race with the highest percentage of coronavirus patients hospitalized at 15.2%. When you talk to people who, who are connected to the community, I mean, how, how are people holding up with, with this? Because this is pretty scary when you're talking about that level of hospitalization and, and the, um, the health risk factors that you mentioned as well. Yeah, it's stressful. It's really stressful for them, um, especially because these Pacific Islander community is already so small. There's honestly not a lot of infrastructure in place already to help them with public health issues. And you can point to that by looking at the public health disparities they're already facing. And so community leaders that I spoke to honestly, are pretty overwhelmed. So one that I mentioned earlier was that this one community leader was um, trying to implement testing Multnomah County, but then also Washington and Union County. And so, you know, she's running all over the state trying to help this community. And it's it's really difficult. Um, and the counties are helping. But at the same time, they're putting a lot of um, they're they're relying a lot on community leaders to reach the community. They're going to have to do things like setting up testing, helping out with translation, getting people to actually come to testing sites, spreading resources, and so that's a lot of that's a lot of pressure for one person or one organization to take on. I'm glad you mentioned the community aspect because uh, the state. Um, you know, while acknowledging that they were slow to realize the disproportionate effects of the pandemic on people of color. They, they did that a month ago. They've tried to take steps to, to address that. And one of the ways they're doing that is, is throwing money at, at the situation through grants to groups that are connected to um, uh, communities of color in the state, whether it's Pacific Islanders or um, Latinx community, African-Americans um, across the board. I, I guess that's the solution that they're, they're pursuing. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to reach a community, especially when it's a community who might not speak English as a first language, a community that might hold some sort of distrust in government from the previous experiences. Mm. It's hard to reach these communities when you are sitting behind a computer all day. And that's not to say that the government isn't doing their job because, you know, part of that is their job, but they have to rely on people who are working within the communities, who know the communities, because those are the people who can really spread resources. Those are the people who know um, kind of what's going on, what people are talking about. And so it's just really important that these relationships are built. And then Multnomah County actually admitted that they were kind of having to build some of these relationships up with community leaders from the ground because they had started building the relationships during the H1N1 pandemic about 10 years ago, mm -hmm. but they suffered due to a lack of funding. And it kind of just 
broke apart. Those relationships weren't fully developed like they should have. And then most recently, the county was kind of like, this is a renewed lesson for how important these relationships are. So hopefully, um, you know, those kind of important relationships aren't going to be succumbing to limited budgets anytime soon. And they're having to reforge these relationships uh, during a pandemic. Exactly. Um, and when, when you know, thousands of people, including across all these communities we're talking about are under underemployed or unemployed. Uh, that's a tough challenge. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's take a break and then come back and talk a little bit more with Selena Tibor about communities of color in Oregon and how they're faring right now. Great. Thank you. So, Selena, I'm curious, how did you get onto the story about the health disparities uh, affecting Pacific Islanders in Oregon? I was actually working on a different story about how refugees in Multnomah County were suffering from COVID-19 disproportionately. And I was on a phone call with a few different community leaders and someone from the Pacific Islander community spoke to the high rates and kind of how overwhelmed she was um, in trying to help this community. And so after that call, I kind of looked at some of the data and I was just absolutely shocked at how how high the rates were. Um, I was really, really shocked by you know, the the number of cases compared to the really small population that the community holds in the state. And I was also shocked that I hadn't heard anything about it, both from kind of other media sources and just on the street, on social media. I really hadn't seen any kind of coverage about Pacific Islanders. And even though it is a really small community, it is a community in Oregon that is important. And so I thought that, you know, someone should write about it. Well, thank you for for doing that. It's really stark to see the the level of effect on on such a small group it's it's really um, scary uh, but they're not alone unfortunately there are other effects across uh, the states and you mentioned being on the call about immigrant and refugee community stories what have you found in terms of how that's affecting uh, immigrants and refugees and obviously you know here in the metro area in particular, you know, we have a wide variety of different cultures, ethnicities represented in that larger umbrella group. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, so when I was working on my story about refugees and immigrants, I was focusing on Multnomah County and kind of kind of the Portland area. And county officials had noticed an uptick in cases in the immigrant and some immigrant um, and refugee communities in early June. So I was able to speak with a leader in the Bhutanese refugee community um, who was a refugee himself. And he kind of told me about all of the different things that made it made it more difficult to reach this community. So obviously, um, like every other community of color with immigrants, language barrier is going to be a huge issue. And it doesn't even matter necessarily if the state has the capacity to just translate word-for-word documents. It's more about being being able to get those resources to that community in their language. And then at the same time, some of those medical words um, that are kind of science-based are kind of difficult to translate into other languages. And it's hard to define the nuances, for example, between isolation and quarantine when you're trying to translate a document. So language barrier across the board has been very, very difficult um, to deal with for all immigrant and refugee communities. 
And I know that some folks, regardless of culture or um, language, absorb information better in different mediums, mm-hmm. right? So that's another challenge that uh, that health officials and community groups face. Yeah, definitely. And some immigrants and refugees don't even have access to the internet and they don't even have access to computers. And in the world that we're currently living in, where everything is digital, it's just that much harder for them to get resources. So we talked earlier about workplace spread and some of the processing plants and outbreaks of COVID-19 across the state. But down on the coast uh, in one of you know the most important commercial fishing ports we have, uh, there was a pretty interesting story that you reported earlier. Uh, kind of what's the situation down in Newport? Um, and then can you talk a little bit about uh, the people who were working uh, in the fishing industry down there who have come down with COVID-19? Yeah. So Newport um, is a port city on the Oregon coast in Lincoln County, and they were hit by the largest food processing outbreak in the state um, over a month ago in early June at Pacific Seafood. It's a really big seafood processing plant. And um, just like everywhere else in the state, this outbreak is affecting people of color more than white people, even though Lincoln County is 88.2% white. Um, so the Oregon State University actually did a study and they found that or their, their, the results of their study found that 3.4% of people in Newport probably have coronavirus, which is a pretty big amount for the city of 10,000 people. And some of these people that are being affected by this new outbreak in Newport um, are the indigenous Guatemalan population there. And so there are a lot of Hispanic people um, who are working in seafood processing over in Newport. And a lot of them are from Guatemala who don't um, who don't speak Spanish or English as their first language. They speak indigenous languages. So, um, example for example, mum is one of the languages that these people speak. And it's fairly easy for the state to translate documents and resources into English and Spanish, just because those are communities um, that we've known about for a long time. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. Spanish speakers that we have access to, and so that's fairly easy. But the county doesn't have any contact tracers or case investigators who speak indigenous Guatemalan languages. Yeah, that's that's not um, something probably that public health officials are are trained up on. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's a, you know, the economic engine of that county relies a lot on on people who speak that language. Yeah, absolutely. And then. Kind of in contrast to some of the other relationships I spoke about earlier, there actually has been an established relationship between the government and this indigenous Guatemalan population in Newport for quite a while now. Um, So if you remember what I was talking about when I was speaking about Pacific Islanders, they kind of had to build those relationships from the ground up and there wasn't really a lot of infrastructure in place to help them. But the Oregon Health Authority has been working um, with the Guatemalan community in Newport for quite a few years. And someone from the Oregon Health Authority that I spoke to told me that when he first heard about the outbreak in Newport, this population kind of immediately came to the forefront of his mind. And it was kind of his immediate concern because he knew that they were going to be more at risk. Um, So the Oregon Health Authority has been working with a nonprofit and a translation center called Vive Northwest, and they're actually setting up a call line for indigenous Guatemalan 
uh, speakers in Newport. So they're Anyone who speaks MUM or any of those other indigenous languages will be able to call that call line and kind of get some more information about COVID-19, what they should do if they think they've been exposed or have the virus, things like that. So it sounds like um, despite, you know, the uh, relatively small population of of Lincoln County, they were actually well-suited to respond Uh, as quickly as they could, given some of the infrastructure they had in place. Yeah, I would say so. Definitely more than um, the refugee and Pacific Islander communities in Multnomah County. So they just had that pre-existing relationship and they were able to quickly set up a call line and develop a lot of resources for that community. But county officials still say that there's more work to be done and and that there's always more work to be done. There's always going to be that language barrier and there's always going to be those medical terms that are hard to translate. And there's always going to be difficulty with accessing resources for people who don't um, have internet or have Wi-Fi. So we talked earlier about trust and how trust in government, trust in media is also kind of a challenge a lot of people, you know, have have their preferred media sources or may not have experience talking to a reporter. What was it like for you reporting this story um, and trying to get get folks to trust and talk to you? Yeah, definitely. So one person who I'm really grateful for, um, his name is Sam Subedi, and he is a refugee community leader for the Bhutanese community in Multnomah County. And he was a refugee himself. And He kind of told me about why refugees might not have trust in kind of government institutions or any institutions. And that's because they've been persecuted for their politics um, or for their religion back in their home country. And they had to flee and become refugees because of that. And so they have a really valid reason um, to not trust institutions. But I was really grateful that some wanted to speak with me. He wanted to um, get out the word about how his community needs help. And I think, although it's a little more difficult for me to speak to people directly in the community who are suffering, the community leaders are really willing to speak because they know their communities need help. They know that speaking to the media is going to bring more attention to their communities. And they're honestly trying to do everything they can to to elevate um, the voices of people who are suffering. Now, we've talked about a, a variety of different folks here um, across, you know, cro- who, who hail from across the world um, and no community is a monolith. But, you know, what else um, are you tracking or thinking of as we kind of look to see how the public health response goes from here or just how communities of color um, uh, fair as there's at least some increase in attention paid to the disproportionate effects of this virus on, on those communities. Yeah. So I think one common thread that we've spoken about is that the state and county governments are relying on community leaders to um, help reach the community. And I think this is a really effective strategy. I think it's really smart of the state to work with the community in this way. But my question is whether these community leaders have the resources they need um, to be able to do the job they need to do, or if the state is kind of just passing on the responsibility and being like, hey, um, this is your guys' job now. We're not doing this and not taking responsibility anymore. Um, and then the community leaders are you know, left with all this work and overwhelmed. So I kind of am hoping to dig a little bit deeper into that 
um, see how community leaders are feeling with being able to handle the coronavirus. And then as the state continues to reopen, I know that we're kind of paused right now, but I think it would be interesting to keep an eye on how communities of color continue to be disproportionately affected as the state continues to reopen and whether the state will reopen as communities of color are continuing to be disproportionately affected or if they're going to prioritize communities of color over reopening. Well, thank you so much for shining a light on these really important stories and for talking about it with us. Yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with The Oregonian. If you like the show, leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the program. Or support the show directly by subscribing to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time. <laughs>